You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 54. Hello there, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, and this episode is being pre-recorded because I'm in Baltimore, Maryland this weekend for Balticon 50. If you're at the con this weekend, you're going to be having way too much fun to have time to listen to podcasts. But I wanted to have something special for you folks at home, too. So let's get to this week's story. This week I'm bringing you a short story in the Metamore City universe. It's called Missing Pieces, and I originally wrote it for an anthology about young people having wishes granted to them. I wasn't able to participate in that anthology because it required attendance at a week-long workshop, which happened right in the middle of my unemployment. But I'm glad I got the chance to write the story, because it's a bit different from anything I've written before. This story was released as a bonus episode for my Patreon patrons a few months ago, and it's also part of the second Metamore City story collection, Divine Intervention. You can pick up the book at the Amazon Kindle store or through Smashwords. I'll have links in the show notes. And now, here's the story. Missing Pieces A Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Ladies and gentlemen, this is our final stop. On behalf of our entire Imperial Transit crew, I'd like to welcome you to Metamore City. Please make sure you have all your belongings with you, and watch your step when exiting the train. Joe stayed in his seat and waited, as the grown-ups rose all around him and crowded into the aisle. For the next five minutes, the car was a claustrophobic mess of business travelers, vacationers, and day-trippers. Joe shrank back into his spot by the window and waited. When the aisle was empty, he shouldered his backpack and hurried off the train. The platform at Imperial Center was huge— The gymnasium at school would have fit inside it at least ten times over. Joe checked the signs and followed the arrows up to the main concourse. Shops, restaurants, and kiosks filled the spaces between the ticket windows and the stairs and escalators coming up from the platforms. A huge painted dome arched high overhead, filled with murals showing Metamore's history, the Dark Wizard and his invading armies, the three great transformation spells he had cast to subdue the defenders, and the curse that had settled on the valley when the counterspells failed to completely neutralize the wizard's magic. The final mural showed the invading armies being driven off by half-animal men armed with swords and axes, children carrying slings and short bows, and tall, beautiful women dressed in knight's armor on horseback. Joe's eyes lingered on that last image, and he felt the strings of hope in his chest. I'm almost there, he thought. Almost. His phone buzzed. Hurriedly, he pulled it out of his jeans pocket and checked the caller ID. Panic gave way to relief. He answered it. Hey, Karen. Hey, little bro. Karen's voice was as warm and welcoming as ever. Joe felt himself relax a little just hearing it. Did your train make it in on time? Yeah, I just got off. Great. How are you doing? Are you excited? Excited and a little scared, Joe admitted. I didn't know things were going to be so huge. Karen laughed. You're not in the Flatlands anymore, Joe. Don't worry, the city does that to everyone at first. Okay. 
Joe hesitated. Have you, um, heard from mother and father yet? Of course. Joe could imagine Karen rolling her eyes. Father called about five minutes after your train was supposed to get here. He had to make sure I was there to pick you up. Joe winced. That could get complicated later. Relax, Karen said. I told him we're going camping up in the mountains, so he won't be able to reach us for a few days. I got you covered, bro. Joe beamed and mouthed a silent prayer of thanks for having such an incredible sister. Thank you so much, Karen. I owe you big time for this. You just do what you gotta do, Karen said. Now remember, you have to go to the Bureau of Magic Regulation. Do you have that address I looked up for you? Joe pulled a crumpled piece of paper out of his pocket. He read the address back to Karen. That's it, she said. Looks like you need to take the Red Line subway four stops south from the train station. If you get lost, call me and I'll help you through it. Got it, Joe said. Thanks again, Karen. I'll call you when it's done. Stay safe, bud. The phone beeped as Karen rang off. Joe found the subway entrance and made it to his stop without having to ask for directions. The exit from the subway system took him to an express lift that deposited him on a skyway, an elevated road 200 meters above the ground. Joe stared around stupidly at the massive towers, super skyscrapers as tall as mountains, with a web of skyways crisscrossing between them. It was like someone had imagined a tropical rainforest in glass, concrete, and steel, and Joe was a little squirrel or something, attached to a branch on one of the enormous trees. He stood at an intersection between two skyways, looked out over the edge, and immediately felt dizzy. Hey kid, you lost? Joe looked around in confusion, then spotted a tall, slender boy in his late teens, standing on the other side of the intersection. He was a handsome guy, with a tight-fitting black band shirt, pierced ears, and a nose ring. Dark eyes gazed across the skyway from under straight, thick hair as black as a raven's wing. The boy smiled at him, and Joe felt like his heart had stopped for a second. Uh, Joe said, like an idiot. The boy looked both ways, waited for a gap in the traffic, then dashed through the crosswalk to Joe's side of the street. You're not from around here, are you? the boy said. Joe shook his head. His tongue felt stuck to the roof of his mouth. I'm John, the boy said, bowing to him in greeting. John Tunstall. Joe Prespolewski. Joe bowed in return. His head was still swimming from the look over the skyway, and the bow made him stumble a little. Nice to meet you. Where are you trying to get to, Joe? Uh, the, um, Bureau of Magic Regulation, Joe said. John smiled. Headed there myself. Come on. John led Joe into the massive tower next to them, then through a maze of lifts, escalators, and shopping plazas. Finally, they came to a large, glass-walled storefront with the BMR seal on it. A receptionist greeted them at a little desk just inside the entrance. Purpose of your visit? she asked. License renewal for an adeptus majoris, John said. Section C6, the receptionist said. Her eyes flicked over to Joe. And you? Um, I want to apply for the curse, Joe mumbled. I'm sorry, the woman asked. The curse, Joe said, louder than he'd intended. Some of the people in the waiting area turned to look at him. Joe blushed and looked down at his shoes. 
Section A, the receptionist said, and waved them on. They continued on into the waiting area, a large open space with rows of chairs and TVs mounted overhead. Section signs hung above desks surrounding the waiting area, and each section had its own take-a-number ticket dispensers. John and Joe each pulled a ticket in their respective sections, then sat down together. John gave Joe a speculative look. Time for a change, huh? You have no idea, Joe muttered. John did not ask him to elaborate, and Joe was grateful for it. They sat and watched the afternoon talk shows for a while. How long have you been studying to be a wizard? Joe asked. Off and on, about ten years, John said. Cool. What kind of magic do you do? Fire magic. John pointed to the slender black wand tucked into a sheath strapped to his thigh. My master's been teaching me some water magic, too, which is cool. I've been doing a lot of transformations lately. Joe's eyebrows went up. Yeah? What kind? John shrugged. Oh, you know, some doppel charms, making myself look like other people. Changing my hair, my skin, my eyes. You ever change your sex? Joe asked, a little too quickly. John's lip turned up in a smirk. Not on my own yet. But that's sort of my master's specialty, so I've been a girl a few times. Wow. Joe looked down at his feet again. I wish I were a water mage. John gave him another thoughtful look, but he said nothing more. Joe's number was called, and he went up to the desk in Section A. They gave him a form to fill out and directed him to a line of private booths. Joe sat down in the nearest open one and looked at the paperwork. Full legal name. Joe wrote, Joanna Charlotte Presbolewski. Age, 13. Morphological sex, female. Gender, male. After filling in his home address and the names of his parents, Joe came to the box he'd been waiting for. Curse variant requested. Joe checked the box labeled Androgyne. Near the bottom of the form was a box for Joe to describe any special details he wanted in his cursed form. It was like the wish list Joe had been waiting his whole life to write. A hundred and ninety centimeters tall. Black hair. Blue eyes. Strong muscles, but not too big, like a dancer or something. A second box asked Joe to explain his reason for wanting to take the curse. He paused, thinking. A full answer would take a lot more room than the box provided. How could he explain the years of confusion, sadness, and shame as he fought with a body that wasn't his, the haunting worry that he was somehow broken? How could he describe the feeling of wrongness whenever mother forced him to wear a dress, or father introduced him to a grown-up as my precious little girl? How to explain the sense of betrayal he felt a year and a half ago, when his stupid body started growing breasts? Joe had them bound down under his baggy sweater, but they ached all the time. More than that, they were always waiting to embarrass him, to expose him. Every trip to the school locker room held the risk of being outed to someone new who didn't know about his condition. To be fair, a lot of his classmates took it well, but some did not. Joe wrote, I was born with missing pieces. I want the curse to put them back. Joe signed the paper and took it back to the clerk in Section A. Then he sat back down. He took out the money Karen had given him and counted out the amount that he would need for his application fee, 
60 marks. He folded the bills, tucked them back into his pocket, and waited. Miss... Oh, Mr. Presbolewski? Joe looked up. The clerk was waving him back over. Yes? he asked. The clerk frowned. Where are your parents? Joe's stomach started churning. They're at home. We... we couldn't afford tickets for all of us, so I came by myself. I see, the clerk said. Do they give you a notarized letter? Joe blushed. I don't know what that is. You're a minor, so you need your parents' permission to take the curse, the clerk explained. They can either come with you in person or send an official letter with a seal like this. He held up a piece of paper that had been stamped in blue ink. Notarial seal, Empire of Metamore, it said. This proves the letter really came from your parents. Oh. Joe thought fast. Can we call my mother? She can give me permission over the phone. Karen's voice sounded a lot like mother's. But the clerk was shaking his head. I'm very sorry, he said. Without an official letter, there's nothing I can do. No. Tears were running down Joe's face now. His throat was clenching up. Please, you don't understand. I can't go home like this. I need you to fix me. Please, I can't stay like this anymore. The clerk looked like he was about to cry, too. I'm so sorry, he whispered. Someone took Joe gently by the arm. Hey, John said. Come on, let's go. No, Joe sobbed. No, please. John put his mouth down by Joe's ear. There's another way, he whispered. Come on, let's get out of here. John led Joe out of the BMR office and through another maze of passages to a place that seemed to be an indoor garden. Benches sat on little elevated tiers connected by walkways and spiral staircases. The walls all around them were thick with plants, and here and there little waterfalls ran down to a fountain pool a few stories below. It was a quiet, peaceful place, and most importantly, there was nobody else around. John handed Joe a wad of clean tissues. Joe wiped his eyes, blew his nose, and felt slightly less horrible. The parents didn't give you permission, huh? Joe sniffled and shook his head. It's not fair. They just don't get it. He clenched his fist and pounded it once on the bench's armrest. I don't understand why I have to be stuck like this for five more years just because mother and father can't understand that I'm a boy. John nodded sympathetically. Well, the way I see it, you've got three options. One, you try to convince your parents to give you permission. Not gonna happen, Joe said miserably. I figured, John said. Option two, we go to my boss's magic shop and we get you fixed up with some temporary magic to make you a boy. Joe looked up at John. He can do that? Can he make me a boy full-time until I'm old enough to take the curse for myself? John's expression grew doubtful. Maybe. How much money do you have? Joe pulled out his wad of cash and handed it over. My sister gave me this. There's money for the application, and then some more for me to live on for the next few days, until the curse takes effect. John flipped through the bills, then sighed. Sorry, man. This might get you six months, tops. Joe took the money back, glumly. What's option three? Well, 
John tapped his fingertips on the bench. You know who controls the curse, right? Duh. Everyone in the Empire knew that. Majestrix Kaya? Right. John spread his hands, palms upward. Look, the bureaucracy is here to make things run smooth, especially with so many people wanting the curse. But they don't really care about the individual cases. They just gotta draw the line somewhere, and you ended up on the wrong side of it. Joe winced, but he nodded. Yeah, I know. But, John said, Kaya's different. Her whole reason for being is taking care of people. I mean, hells, she's been looking out for the people of Metamore for thousands of years. If you go to her and explain your situation, I'll bet she makes an exception for you. Joe stared at John. So you're saying that I should just walk up to the ruler of the whole empire and ask her to make me a boy? John grinned. Exactly. You, Joe said, must have some very big balls. John laughed. Well, not androgyne big, but you know. He raised his eyebrows at Joe, and his dark eyes twinkled. How about it? You want to give it a try? Joe only had to think about it for a moment. Sure. What have I got to lose? As the immortal guardian spirit for a magical castle, Majestrix Kaya could only be found in one place, the Citadel of Metamore. Joe had seen pictures of it before, a vast fortress of gray stone that towered above even the megastructures of Metamore City. As he stood at the foot of Kaya's home, though, Joe knew that no photograph could do it justice. He felt stupidly, ridiculously small. She's never gonna listen to me, Joe said. John clapped an encouraging hand on his shoulder. You never know, he said. How are we even gonna find her? Joe shook his head wonderingly at the living fortress. She posts a schedule of her public appearances, John said. Come on, let's have a look. The front gates of the Citadel were always open, so Joe and John walked in without having to go through any kind of security. Once they were inside, though, Joe got a sinking feeling— as an all-too-familiar picture started flashing on the Citadel's message screens. Endangered Child, the screen read, above a copy of Joe's school ID photo. If found, please call emergency services at 998. John swore. He pulled Joe into a side passage and then into a family restroom. This is not good, he said. Why is this happening? Joe asked, freaking out and unable to stop himself. I'm not endangered, I'm fine. BMR must have called your folks when you showed up without a note, John said. An idea occurred to Joe then, and he felt a surge of hope and excitement. John, your water magic. You can transform me into someone else. John made a sucking sound between his teeth. No can do, kid. The whole citadel is full of magic sensors. You'd stick out like an androgyne's... Never mind, he amended. Magic isn't going to get us out of this one. There must be something we can do, Joe said. A sudden light filled John's eyes. He grinned. Yeah, there is, he said. I need your measurements. My measurements? Yeah, you know, John said. For girl clothes. Joe stared at him. What? Just trust me, John said. Joe searched John's dark, sparkling eyes. He had no idea what John had in mind, but... He sighed and told John his measurements. 
John wrote them down on an old receipt he had in his back pocket. I'll be back as soon as I can, John said. Don't open this door for anyone but me, all right? All right, Joe whispered. John left, and Joe locked the door behind him. Joe sat on the toilet and watched the notifications on his phone. Mother had bombarded him with a couple dozen text messages, and there were several missed calls from father's work number. Joe didn't reply to any of them. There was nothing he could tell them that wouldn't make this worse. A message came in from Karen, too. Parents just left me a voicemail. They think you've been abducted. What's going on? Joe wanted to answer, but he hit the dismiss button on that one, too. He had no idea what he was going to tell their parents, but he was pretty sure it would be best not to get Karen involved any more than she already was. He felt terribly, desperately alone. After what felt like an eternity, a knock came at the bathroom door. Joe, open up, it's John. Joe did so. John pushed his way inside with a big handful of shopping bags. Finally, what took you so long? Joe asked. Sorry. Big line at the last store, John said, but I think I have a working plan. Great, what is it? John reached into one of the bags and pulled out a flowery pink and white skirt and a frilly white blouse. Oh, no, Joe said. No, 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 John. I know, but listen, this is perfect. No! Joe's shout echoed around the tight confines of the bathroom. John stared at him in silence. You don't understand, Joe said. Tears were filling his eyes again, choking up his voice. I can't. Father's always trying to make me into that girl. The one with the frills and the lace and the pink, and I hate it. It's not who I am. It's never been who I am. I. And then he couldn't say any more. He just stood there, crying, like an idiot. Hey. John got down on one knee in front of him and looked him in the eye. Listen to me. I know, okay? I know this isn't you. I'm not trying to turn you into that person. But look. He pulled out his phone, tapped the screen a few times. The endangered child notice came up, complete with Joe's school photo. This is who they're looking for. They're looking for someone who looks like a boy. He held up the blouse. They aren't looking for this. If you want to get to the Majestrix, you need a disguise. That's all this is. Slowly, Joe lifted his eyes up to the blouse. He still hated just the sight of the thing, but... You're saying I should... disguise myself as a girl? Exactly, John said. It's just acting. It's playing a part. But I've never done acting, Joe said. Of course you have. John said. He put his hand on Joe's shoulder. Like, do you show every part of yourself to your teachers? Do you act the same way with your grandparents as you do with your sister? How about with a guy or girl you're trying to impress? Everybody acts. Every day, Joe. We all have different parts we play. To get along, to get what we want, or to make somebody's day easier. As long as you know who you are, in here... He tapped the center of Joe's chest with a finger. That's all that matters. The rest is just pretend. Joe bit his lip and thought hard. Pretending to be a girl, so I can finally be a boy on the outside. 
so I can get my missing pieces. I can do that. I'm... I'm gonna need your help, Joe said, looking at the girl clothes. It's been a long time since I've worn this stuff. John grinned. It's been six weeks for me, I think. Like I said, my master likes his transformation spells. I've got you covered. It took them about twenty minutes to complete Joe's transformation back into Joanna. John had gone all out. Bra, panties, stockings, pink sneakers, and a blonde wig, as well as lipstick, eyeliner, mascara, and blush. Everything fit amazingly well, except for the shoes, which were a little too big. Joe's breasts felt more comfortable in that bra than they had been since they'd grown big enough that he needed to hide them. He was looking forward to getting rid of them for good. John applied the makeup carefully and with surprising skill, probably because of all the practice his master had given him. When he was done, he turned Joe to face the mirror. A cute blonde teenage girl stared back at Joe, her mouth hanging open in shock. She could have been on the cheerleading squad at school and nobody would have thought twice about it. She was nobody that Joe recognized. She certainly wasn't Joe. But then, that was the point. Whoa, good disguise, Joe murmured. Thanks, John said. Now let's find the Majestrix. They returned to the entry hall and continued on into an open concourse, a breathtakingly huge space, easily three times the size of the train station. A dozen lifts with glass walls and brass fittings slid silently up and down on tracks that must have been a hundred stories tall at least. All around them, balconies looked down on the concourse from floor after floor, some of them private residences, others public galleries, or the seating areas of bars and restaurants. The floor of the concourse was filled with people coming and going, more kinds of people than Joe had ever seen before in his life. Somewhere nearby, a live band was performing with a portable PA system. Bright, happy, welcoming music, which somehow fit the feeling of the place. It was as if everyone could feel Majestric's Caius presence in the stones around them, watchful, protective, delighting in all her adopted children. Joe wasn't sure if he counted as one of those children or not. I guess there's only one way to find out. John went up to the interactive message board and called up a list of the Majestrix's public appearances. It looks like today she's at a benefit for the International Red Spiral, John said. He checked the floor and room number against the map. It's on the 220th floor, Central Spire. That's pretty rich territory. I don't care, Joe said. We have to try. If I don't talk to her today, the police will find me as soon as I try to get a room for the night and then they'll take me back to my parents. John nodded. All right, looks like we need to go this way. They took a lift up to the 220th floor. As they stepped out of the lift, Joe immediately understood what John had meant by rich territory. The fancy carpets, paintings, and chandeliers looked like something out of an old movie, the kind that Mother liked with lords romancing ladies and throwing fancy parties and all that other junk that Joe hated. All the doors were clearly numbered, so they had no trouble figuring out which way to go. Soon they came to a set of beautifully carved double doors, which opened onto a large ballroom. Though really, Joe's sense of largeness had gotten so stretched at this point that the room looked almost cozy. 
A sign by the door announced the fundraiser, but everyone who was invited seemed to already be inside. Joe poked his head in through the open doors and saw hundreds of people milling around, carrying drinks and talking. A lot of them were theriomorphs, the half-animal version of the curse. Joe knew it was a popular form among the older noble houses, the ones with deep ties to Metamore's history. He saw foxes and wolves and badgers and rats, and dozens more he couldn't identify as quickly. There were normal-looking humans of all ages, too, and especially beautiful ones who may have been androgynes. Joe even saw a few more exotic races, elves and sylvan, a nereid with blue skin and green hair, and one bald man with bright, glowing eyes, who might have been a dragon in its human form. Joe had read about such people, had seen pictures of them in books and magazines, but he had never dreamed he would be in the same room with them. After standing there and staring for a moment, Joe pulled himself together and started scanning the room from Majestrix Kaya. Everyone in the Empire knew what she looked like, a stately, elegant woman with fair skin, silver-white hair, and gray eyes, a quiet demeanor, and a gentle smile. There, halfway across the room and a little to Joe's left, she stood in a loose circle with some of the other guests, a tall blonde woman on her left and a short, elderly rat man on her right. Kaya was even facing more or less in Joe's direction. If she looked up just now, they would be looking right at each other. It's now or never, Joe thought. John was saying something, but Joe didn't hear him. He ran into the ballroom, dodging and weaving around the other guests, making the straightest line for Kaya that he could. Majestrix! he shouted at the top of his lungs. Majestrix, I need your help! Somebody twice Joe's size came out of nowhere and wrapped their arms around him, lifting him bodily off the ground. Joe just saw a black suit and polished black shoes. No, let me go, Joe shouted, thrashing and kicking. Majestrix, please, please help me. For a moment, Kai's eyes met Joe's. She looked shocked and concerned. But then another man in a black suit was at her side, whispering in her ear, and there were more men all around Joe, holding him back. Nobody was hurting him, but they weren't going to let him take one more step toward the Majestrix either. Then one of the guards muttered something that sounded like Elvish, and Joe instantly fell asleep. Joe woke up in a jail cell. It didn't have bars or anything, but there was a narrow bed and a toilet and a sink and a door that didn't open from the inside. Joe pounded on that door for a while and shouted, but no one came. Joe sat back down on the bed, looking down at the ridiculous skirt and blouse and the stupid pink sneakers. His costume felt so pointless now. He'd gotten so close, and he'd blown it all at the last minute. They probably thought he was a crazy girl, or maybe some kind of terrorist disguised as a girl. The tears started flowing again, and Joe hated himself. Why did he have to be this way? Why did he have to be made wrong? I just wanted to be me, he whispered. Why can't I have that? Who told you that you couldn't? Joe looked up with a start. The voice had come from somewhere very close, but the room was still empty, except for him. But he thought he knew that voice. Kaya, he whispered. And then, on the other side of his cell, she stepped out of the wall. His first thought, weirdly, was that she wasn't as tall as she looked on TV. 
She still wore the same white business suit she'd worn at the fundraiser, simple and elegant, with a thin silver necklace and silver stud earrings. Her hair was short on one side and fell to the level of her chin on the other, a stylish, modern cut that was sort of surprising on a creature more than ten thousand years old. Her stone-gray eyes held Joe's and wouldn't let go, but there was gentleness in their grip, and Joe was not afraid. Awestruck, yes, but not afraid. I apologize for the wait, she said, a small smile gracing her lips. I'm afraid your friend caused a bit of a scene when you were taken away. I spoke to him, and the police have agreed not to charge him. John tried to help me, Joe thought wonderingly, even when I was being an idiot. Thank you, ma'am, he whispered. The police tell me you came here without your parents' permission. Is that true? Joe nodded, mutely. Kaya sat down next to him on the edge of the bed. She reached over and took his hand. Her skin was warm and dry against his. You must have been desperate to take such a risk, she said gently. Can you tell me why? I... Joe stopped, swallowed, and tried again. I have missing pieces. Kaya cocked her head quizzically. How do you mean? Joe sighed and shook his head. I mean, I'm a boy. I've always known I was a boy, for as long as I can remember. But I wasn't born with... boy parts. He gestured down at the space between his legs. Kaya's face brightened in understanding. I see. Not so much missing pieces, then, but the wrong pieces. Your body doesn't match your inner self. This happens to many people in Metamore when the curse claims them. I know. Joe said. I was hoping it would, you know, work in the other direction for me. That it would fix my body so it would match what's inside me. An interesting solution, Kaya murmured. But you know, becoming an androgyne doesn't just make you a boy. You would still have access to this form. She gestured at Joe's female body. Joe frowned. But I wouldn't have to spend time as a girl, would I? I don't have to change back if I don't want to. That is true, Kaya admitted. But as long as the cursed have been able to return to their original forms, I have found that nearly all choose to do so sooner or later. Her mouth parted in a knowing smile. I think most humans are too complicated to fit neatly into categories like male and female. You all have a few pieces that don't quite fit. Sometimes it just takes a little magic to realize it. She put an arm around Joe's shoulders. Don't feel like you have to conform to anyone's expectations of the way you should be. Not your parents, not me, not even yourself. Explore. Discover. She fingered one of the frills on Joe's blouse. Try things on for size. You are human, and that means you are always changing. Embrace that. So, you will change me? Joe asked. He was almost afraid to hear the answer now. Kaya closed her eyes and nodded once. I will, but I would like to call your parents first to explain my reasons why. They deserve that much consideration. Slowly, a grin spread across Joe's face. Mother and father would get a phone call from the Majestrix? Joe wished he could see the looks on their faces. It's a deal, he said.
One week later. Joe fidgeted in the passenger seat as Karen's ground car pulled up in front of the old farmhouse. It was a beautiful sunny day, but Joe still felt the sense of dread as he looked up at the front door. You ready for this, little bro? Karen asked. No, Joe said. But he got out of the car anyway. They went to the door together, and Joe pushed the doorbell. For a long time, there was no reply. Maybe they've gone to town, Karen said. Maybe they've disowned us both, Joe muttered. At last, Joe heard approaching footsteps. The door opened. Mother stood there, her long, dark hair looking a little grayer than before, the lines in her face a little deeper. Before Joe could say anything, she had wrapped him up tightly in her arms. Her cheek was wet against his. My sweet child, she whispered, her voice rough with tears. Mother, Joe whispered back, and returned the hug just as tightly. I'm so sorry, Mother said. We thought you were just being difficult. We... we didn't understand. I know, Joe said. Now he was on the verge of tears. Mother drew back and held him at arm's length. She was still crying, but she was smiling, too, as she looked Joe up and down. Joe thought he looked pretty good. He wasn't anywhere near the 190 centimeters he'd asked for. Kaya said he would need to finish growing, just like any other teenager. But he was slim and wiry, and he didn't have a hint of the big breasts that had plagued him until the curse took hold. Kaya had darkened his hair from mouse brown to black, just like he'd asked for, and there was even the faintest hint of stubble starting to come out on his chin and upper lip. He grinned at Mother. What do you think? Mother slowly shook her head, but her smile was dancing in her eyes. I think I have a very handsome boy. She stepped back and let Joe and Karen into the house. Mother hugged her daughter briefly, but with no less warmth than she'd given Joe. I'm sorry I lied to you, Karen murmured in Mother's ear. Later, dear. Mother squeezed Karen's hand and led the way to the kitchen at the back of the house. Father was standing near the back door, his clothes and boots still muddy from work. He stood behind the kitchen table, his fingers gripping the back of one of the chairs. He stared at Joe as they entered the room. Walter, dear, Joe is home, Mother said, gesturing at her son. Uh, Father cleared his throat. Hello, Joe. He nodded to Joe, his dark eyes still wide and uncertain. I'm, I'm glad you made it home safe. Joe nodded back. Thanks, Father. It's good to be home. Father's eyes went to Karen. Sweetheart, thank you for bringing your for bringing Joe back to us. Karen smiled, though there was something sad and quiet about her eyes. Safe and sound, she said. So I see. Father looked Joe up and down, then nodded again. Well, I guess I'd better finish seeing to that fence. He gave them a small, stiff smile, then exited out the back door. That went better than I'd hoped, Karen said dryly. He just needs some time, dear, Mother said. Curses and shapeshifters and Majestrix Kaya belong to a different world from the one he grew up in. He'll come around. She put her arm around Joe and gently led him toward the kitchen table. 
Now then, why don't I make us a nice pot of tea, and you can tell me all about Metamore City. Joe grinned as a weight 13 years in the making finally lifted off his shoulders. I'd love to, he said. And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to get more bonus stories from me, why not sign up to be a monthly patron on my Patreon campaign? All you need is a PayPal account or a credit card, and you can get bonus stories, bonus artwork, and other cool stuff. And if you contribute at least $15 a month, you get copies of every new ebook I release, including Divine Intervention. That's patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook page is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, And if you'd like to support the show and help me keep making it, you can sign up for a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. The links will be in the show notes. That's our show for this week. Come back next time for my interview with J. Daniel Sawyer, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this show are copyright 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.